Now we did build 13,000 floats for a Canadian fire bomber back in the day. Those ones were different because they stored water in the floats. We really like the fact that these, the 10,000 scoops up into a, a dedicated hopper in the air tractor, that's worked really well. G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 23 of On The Step with that Mallard guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. On The Step is your one-stop shop to talk all things float planes and flying boats. To get in contact with me, my email is hotmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram and send me a message at thatmallardguy. Now don't forget your Apple Podcast reviews, folks. Get them in and tell the world how much you love On The Step so I can continue to grow the show and get many, many more people on board. Speaking of which, I know lots of people have sent suggestions for future guests. Do not worry if I haven't got them on yet. I've listed your suggestions and we'll get to them as soon as possible. Uh, Before starting on the step, I made a long list of people I wanted to interview to get me started. Once that is finished, I'll be getting onto the suggested guest as well. So don't panic and keep them coming for sure, folks. Before we jump into the chat with this episode's special guest, folks, it's been another big and very sad few days in the seaplane news. To the US, and at least eight people, including three children, have been killed when two aeroplanes collided over a scenic US mountain lake in northern Idaho. One of the aircraft was a float plane operated by Brooks Seaplane, which operates charter flights for tourists over Lake Coeur d'Alene. That plane was carrying five passengers, including three children and a pilot. The second aeroplane was a Cessna 206 that was carrying at least two people, the sheriff's office said. The lake was very busy with boaters on the 4th of July weekend, and numerous personal boats went to the scene immediately in search for survivors. The Sheriff's Marine Teams, Fire Department and the US Coast Guard also responded. Investigators from the National Transport Safety Board are headed to the scene and will conduct the investigation into what happened. That article from the cbsnews.com website. To Alaska and two people escaped serious injury on Sunday the 5th of July after their float plane crashed at Lakewood Seaplane Base. Ted Stevens, Anchorage International Airport Police and Fire, said a Cessna 180 flipped on the water around 11am in the Lake Spenard area on the eastern part of the seaplane base. The crash happened during landing, said Clint Johnson, the Alaska Chief of the National Transport Safety Board. The two people on board evacuated as airport police and firefighters used boats to rescue them. The NTSB is trying to find out what caused the crash. That article from ktva.com. And finally to Australia and Troy Thomas, former owner-operator of Horizontal Falls Seaplane Adventures, died after the Robinson R44 helicopter he was flying crashed on Saturday afternoon around 2.30pm in Broome, Western Australia. Thomas owned and operated the Horizontal Falls Seaplane Adventures from 2006 to 2019 and in that time won countless awards including three consecutive gold medals at the National Tourism Awards in Canberra. The family-run business was sold last year. It's understood the fatal crash on Saturday happened in a private helicopter during a private flight. The Australian Transport Safety Bureau is investigating the accident. That article from watoday.com.au website. This one here is a little close to home and I personally have some good friends who are currently 
or who have worked with Troy through Horizontal Force seaplanes in the past, and I would like to pass on my condolences to everyone involved within the company. And that, folks, is a very sombre seaplane news update. Okay, everyone, on to today's guest. It's Amy Gesh, and she works for the incredible float building company Whip Air. She goes into great depth to tell us all about what it's like to design, build, and sell Whip Air floats. This interview has to be one of my favorites. But for now, folks, let's get out the rivet gun. Carefully lining up the rivet, we'll pull over our earmuffs before making a noise only an engineer could handle. Once completing the float, it will be fitted to its corresponding aircraft, ready to get going on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A lot. Okay, welcome from Whip Air in the United States, Amy Gesh to On The Step. How are you going, Amy? Very good. Happy to be here and talk float planes. Absolutely. I love talking float planes with everybody and anybody, so great to have you on the show. Um, Amy, can you start us off? Uh, I've just given away where you work for and what we're probably going to talk to a lot about today, uh, being at Whip Air. But why don't you just start us off with whereabouts are you located right now? Uh, we are based in South St. Paul, Minnesota, so just outside the Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area in Minnesota. So for those of you outside of the United States, that can uh, be summed up as a an area with a lot of lakes, a lot of float plane destinations, and really long cold winters. <laughs> Good summers, though? Wonderful summers. We are approaching, as we're talking, we're approaching our Independence Day holiday, and that's always a very traditional, you know, seaplane getaway, lots of lake houses and cabins in this area just to, you know, get out of the hustle and bustle and escape. Yeah, I'm just having a look on Google Maps as I'd have to for most people because I'm not that uh, down pat with uh, all of my American states just yet, but I'm learning very quickly. Um, Yeah, as you mentioned, the state looks incredibly uh, well spread out with lakes uh, and it has a rich history of seaplane activity, I believe. It does. So Whip Air has been here building floats since 1960. Uh, however, there have been other float companies based in Minnesota or near Minnesota, and that includes uh, PK floats at one time, Aqua floats, as well as Bauman. Now, Bauman uh, was actually based at the same airport as Whip Air and then moved into neighboring state Wisconsin. So they've always been close by uh, with all the water here. It's just been a, been a strong history of float flying and seaplane flying. 1960, hey, so 60-year anniversary this year for Whip Air, is that right? It is. We expected to do many anniversary celebrations at fly-ins and events throughout the year, but uh, clearly uh, COVID-19 has had other plans, but we're still very proud of our 60 years building floats, and the family itself has been in aviation uh, for much longer than that, with uh, the first business that uh, the Whiplinger family started here, uh, reaching all the way back to 1946. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, proud to be a whip air float driver at one stage, obviously on a flying boat at the moment. But uh, yeah, I've flown uh, some a lot of whip air floats, which have been amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the company uh, quickly? You mentioned there a little bit. Um, what other history can you can you share with us? Of course. So we're a third generation family owned company. Uh, we were founded by Ben Whiplinger, and he started Whiplinger Aircraft Service initially back in 1946. That was after. He got out of the service following World War II. Uh, Interestingly enough, his first business started with refurbishing military surplus aircraft into executive aircraft. 
So if you are familiar with 3M, another Minnesota company that, you know, obviously has businesses around the world and adhesives and chemicals and everything, we actually refurb their first executive aircraft. So we started in that front and then uh, as Ben liked to, one, liked to fly and liked to entertain people, he wanted to be able to fly floats up to northern Minnesota, started flying a set of Edo floats, and has always had an engineer's mindset, always a tinkerer, and he had some improvements that he wanted to make that he actually tried to sell back to Edo, and Edo at the time was plenty busy with the post-war general aviation boom, and you know, wasn't really interested in pursuing that line of business. So Ben decided that, well, you know, how hard can it be? I'll just build my own. And so he built his first set of floats in 1960, and we've been producing floats continually since then. We now offer floats for aircraft ranging in size from the Piper Super Cub and Aviat Husky all the way up to the Viking and de Havilland Twin Otter. And interestingly enough, even though floats remain our core business, we do still have all of those other aircraft services like paint, interior, avionics, and other maintenance. Yeah, that's incredible. It's uh, such a diverse range, isn't it? From like the Twin Otter all the way down to the Husky there or the Cub, that's a, a huge difference. But I imagine the philosophy about designing and creating floats doesn't really change with size. Is that correct? That's true. You know, the methods from one float to another really truly remain constant. The you know, dedication to the process and the quality remains the same, whether you're buying our smallest set of floats or our largest. I'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, what you guys do there in a moment. But uh, why don't we start off with you, Amy, and how you got into the float plane career? Because I love hearing about how anyone got into flying floats. You know, what's your story like? Well, I have to step back just a little bit because I always find this an interesting anecdote in my history. So I attained my private pilot license when I was a senior in high school. I actually took the check ride just after and I pursued university and was studying. I always knew I needed to double major in something because everybody told me if you want to study aviation, that's great, but I always have a fallback. And I ended up doing a double major between aviation management, so a non-flying degree as I was already flying on the side, and then marketing. And I was involved with you know numerous clubs and aviation organizations on campus and throughout there I was applying to all these scholarships and here in the states the women in aviation international organization does you know a lot of scholarships and I applied for one they have a rule that you can only apply for two and they have a phenomenal scholarship program and I applied for one for my instrument rating because I figured that would be a responsible thing to do and I applied for one for my seaplane rating because that just seemed like way more fun than staring at a bunch of instruments (laughs) and I was a finalist for the instrument rating scholarship and I got a chance to interview in person as you know one of these these few finalists and they asked me well you know what other scholarships did you apply for it was a little bit more of a professional flight centered scholarship And so I said, well, you know, hey, here's my goals. But yes, I applied for the seaplane scholarship. And one of the interview panel members said, well, what are you going to do with the seaplane rating? You're going to get a seaplane rating and nobody's ever going to let you fly a seaplane. And, you know, I kind of I remembered that because when I came to Whip Air, I had very little float experience, but I had a lot of aviation experience and passion for aviation. So my proudest moment was being able to look back on that and Whip Air paid for me to do my seaplane rating. 
and I got to do it during work hours. So I like to brag that I technically got paid to do my seaplane rating. <laughs> That's the guy. So it was, it was it was just a fun fun turnabout because it was an unexpected turn in life. I didn't necessarily expect to be in the seaplane side, but I found a great home here and I'm having a lot of fun. Absolutely. And how long have you been at Whip Air now for? I have been here about eight years. Wow. Must be a great company to work for. You don't hear um, a lot of GA kind of jobs uh, go for that long. Yeah, you know, at eight years, I am still one of our younger employees. Uh, we have several that are 20, 30, even 40 years with the company. Yeah, absolutely. You can tell that um, there's a good culture around a company when people have been working there for that long. So that's great to hear. What about your role exactly? So what are you doing there at Whipper? Are you building the floats? Are you selling them? You know, how's, how does that work? What's your job? I've worn a few hats here. Now I started as our marketing manager, so I would oversee, you know, all of our marketing from whether that be trade shows and events, emails, print materials. And then about two years ago, I moved into sales, which was more surprising to me than to anybody else. But I'm here to tell you that like fun fact, what they don't tell you about having a sales job in aviation, or at least at a company like Whip Air, where, where we're a very fun oriented work atmosphere, uh, I, I technically get paid to talk about airplanes. So this is like, this is, I'm like living the dream here. And what I cover is all of our STC products for aircraft from Super Cub up to Cessna 206. And I've got a colleague in that my territory is North America and the Caribbean. I got a colleague that covers the beaver and larger for the same territory. And then we have someone that does everything else around the world. So he covers the whole range. And then I also have the opportunity to sell certain piston aircraft, typically the four-cylinder ones like Huskies, Cubs, 172s, and similar airplanes. That's interesting. So there's only three of you worldwide to actually sell Whip Air Floats, is that correct? We do have one additional person that is our OEM account representative or OEM account director. Uh, but yeah, basically that's that's it. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, so selling floats and small planes. Um, how have you found that challenge? When, like you said, you didn't really expect yourself to go down the sales route. There was a lot of learning to do, but the wonderful thing is that we've got, again, with so many long-term employees, we've got a lot of opportunity to learn and a lot of people that helped me along the way. Uh, what was more important was, you know, a willingness and ability to track down the technical answers to the questions. We're not a company that, you know, embodies any of those traditional, like, sales stereotypes, our goal is to be very helpful and knowledgeable. And if we don't know the answer to a question, we'll find out for you. And sometimes part of my job is telling people that there's another provider that can solve their problem, you know, and we're yeah. always happy to do that. So we're not, put it this way, we, we don't live in a world where we're the used car salespeople just with <laughs> wings. I, w I was going to ask that because, yeah, is it, is it, uh, is it okay if I walk through the uh, the sales yard and not get harassed for you know the first two seconds when I walk in? Is, is that something you'll let me do? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we'll still ask <laughs> if you want to if you want to ask questions, or but usually that's just because we're looking for an excuse to talk airplanes to someone. True. <laughs> and I, I do a fair amount of tours. I did them when I worked in marketing, and you know, sometimes people say, "Oh, well, you know, I'm going to be there in a week. You know, could I maybe come in for a tour?" And my answer is always like, "Absolutely," because. You know, I can sit at my desk and I can work at my computer. I can walk you through our hangars and our manufacturing facilities and talk about floats and airplanes. Like, you, you tell me which option you'd take. Absolutely. No, um, I, I want to know the process. Like, let's say um, 
I walk into the Whip Air sales yard there and I'm looking for a set of floats for my aircraft. What's the process that I would go through with you, for example? Yeah, there's usually two starting points. One being that you have an aircraft that you already know that we can put floats on. Obviously, all of our floats are built to a technical standard order, but then the vast majority of customers we're working with are using certified aircraft. So that means that their options are going to be limited to what is approved by our FAA or validated by foreign civil aviation authorities. So sometimes they know and they say, hey, why should I buy new versus used? Or perhaps why should I buy your floats versus these other ones I'm looking at? But there's also another sector of of customers that say, I've always wanted a float plane. I don't know what I want. So you have these people that are basically fairly cut and dried for what they're looking for. And then it's just answering all of their technical questions, working through their schedule and working through their budget. But there is another segment that is more educational where we will work with them and say, you know, where are you looking to fly? What's what's the lake like? You know, we'll do some research. How many people are you looking to take? You know, how much how much payload? And we can make a recommendation. A common educational piece can be not only on well, what happens to useful load, but for certain Cessna aircraft, the you know fact that you need a factory float kit on many of them and it's not necessarily as simple as oh i have a 172 you make floats for 172 let me get a set of those on order so working them through that and making sure they understand the options some customers will find that they're better off buying a used aircraft that's already on floats then some of them will steer you know more towards getting a brand new set of floats so we will walk both of them through there so there's a lot of understanding where the customer is coming from and also education yeah absolutely and i guess the next question is i guess why why should someone buy whipline floats compared to the others on the market what's your sales pitch for whipline it can depend on the airplane a little bit but one thing that we always lead with is that we build more floats for more airplanes than anybody else in the world so we've got the broadest variety we've got you know this widest swath of aircraft covered We've got 24-7 parts support. We've got 60 years of heritage and history. Our family-owned, we're investing in research and development for new products. And as you get into the specific aircraft, you know, then we start to say, hey, our float has more buoyancy and more flotation than this competitive float, or it's got a different hull shape. Fly both of them, see how you like how ours handles and crosswinds, see how you like how it, you know, pulls out of the water how big the sweet spot is as a comparative basis so it can really depend on the airplane but there's a lot of different factors that go in there and like for instance one of the things that we've done in the last three years is we introduced our laser gear advisory system and it took us a long time to certify it was more complicated than we thought but you know it's now standard on all of our amphibious floats and that system does away with the simple airspeed switch that, you know, I know you said you flew with blind floats, so you're probably really used to hitting the button to inhibit it once it squawks at you. But the goal of the laser is to remove those repetitive warnings because there is not only research, but, you know, experience in the industry that, you know, the more you hear the same thing over and over, the less you actually hear it. So this system will only squawk at you when there's a mismatch. You have to be low enough, slow enough, and have the gear in the wrong position for the detected landing surface. So it's a really cool advancement of that gear advisory technology. Yeah, right. I haven't actually heard of that. Can you just give us a quick summary of, of, of how that one works? 
Yes, so again, the original system was just airspeed based. It didn't know where you were, what you were, and anytime you pass through this threshold and the switch change, it would squawk at you. Gear is up for water landing or gear is down for runway landing. And this new system adds a couple layers of safety. One, when you accelerate through the threshold airspeed, which varies based on airplane. So for you know a Husky, I think it's about 74 knots. When you accelerate through there, if you don't retract the landing gear, from a runway takeoff, it'll remind you check gear because one thing that we heard was, hey, you know, I'm climbing out. I got distracted by a passenger. I got distracted by a radio call. And then they don't realize that their gear is still down when they go to land on the water. It breaks your normal flow. So that's one added feature. Next, we put a little laser array or eye or whatever you want to call it out in the wing. And that looks straight down and it bounces a laser beam down. And if there is Again, a mismatch between the detected landing surface at 50 feet above surface level, and you're slow enough to be looking at landing, it'll tell you check gear. Now, if you have the gear in the correct position for the detected surface and you're slow enough and you're at 50 feet above the surface, it won't tell you anything. So it removes those repetitive alerts. It also yeah. has a fail safe where if the laser throws an error code where it didn't start up properly, the system will revert back to the standard airspeed enunciations. Well, that's super interesting. Um, I've got a couple well comments for that. The first one is I did a presentation a year ago at our um, Australian Seaplane Pilots Association. Uh, we had a conference on and I did a, a presentation on landing gear or gear down water landings basically. And one of the things I found, I did a, I found about 26 um, incident reports on seaplane accidents, gear down accidents in the water. And I think it was something like 80% of those accidents occurred from a runway takeoff. So that's it's great to recognize the fact that um, Whipline are doing something about um, an actual departure from a runway and reminding the pilot to retract the gear once they go through that airspeed threshold. So that's, that's a great improvement. Um, the second thing, I guess, and this probably has to do with the 50 feet thing we have an airport in uh, the Whitsunday is called Hamilton Island and you can be basically on final approach all the way down to I imagine probably 50 feet almost um, where you'll be over water and then it's literally a rock wall and there's a runway how would that work with the system there are similar airports here in the U.S., including our seaplane base, as well as the uh, airport in Renton, Washington, is another common uh, example. In that situation, it's important to remember that a gear advisory system is just that. It's advisory. It does not replace a physical check of your gear position. So there are ways in which you might be able to trick it a bit. So in that situation, it could give you a false one. Now, of course, I know that you're operating on a professional crew, so I'm assuming that you also are, you would brief that in your approach. If you're landing on a displaced threshold or, you know, farther down the runway, it wouldn't be an issue. The only other thing that we've found that can really, you know, affect how you use the laser is if you're landing in really, really dirty water. Uh, we're based on the Mississippi River here, which in the U.S. has a you know, nickname of being the muddy Mississippi, it does fine on the Mississippi. But if you find really frothy water or super dirty water, 
there's a small little lake south of our seaplane base that is like the color of a latte. Like if you stick your hand in it a foot deep, you cannot see your hand anymore. That one it will have, you know, some challenges with. So any advisory system, you know, has its limitations, whether you're understanding how do I use and work the airspeed based system versus how do I use and work the laser based system? And it can vary from you know, operator to operator. But like I said, important to know the differences between the two and where, where each one of them has their strong suits. Yeah, it's different the philosophy for every operator as well. I think uh, like the first company I actually worked for that had um, the gear advisory system, it was actually disabled because they found it to be way too distracting. And I mean, we used to do a lot of short sectors on that as well. Um, but their philosophy was more in the checklist use. And, you know, while I was there, there were certainly no accidents and they haven't been for probably over maybe 15 years now um, but then other operators you know swear by them but yeah it's an interesting one and it sounds like that laser um, technology is um, very interesting uh, for sure and hopefully could potentially save lives in the future so that's some great work from WIPAIR I guess. Yeah it's it's an interesting system it's been a lot of fun to fly with um, there's a video on our website if you go to whipair.com slash laser there's a, like I said, there's a video that's really handy. It's, it's also listed on our product, product pages. So you can see how it works. Like, like you said, with checklist, checklist usage, I mean, nothing replaces the use of a good solid checklist and just, you know, standard consistent workflows. So we hope that this is helpful, just like the original gear advisory system, but it's certainly not an excuse to get lackadaisical in your, your safety approach either. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I guess back to that scenario, um, you know, I've chosen the aircraft and the, or the floats that I want to choose for my uh, own aircraft there. How do I proceed from there? Do I go up and um, is there finance available with you guys or, you know, what's the process there? What about delivery and everything else? Yeah, so we offer the floats as either installed or shipped. So what's going to happen is we're going to figure out what's going to work best for you as we're, you know, determining, hey, these are the floats you want. In the meantime, we're going to be working with our manufacturing department for schedule. Now, people often ask us, do you build floats to order or do you build on a set production plan? And I always say, well, the answer is yes. I look at me a little quizzically and I say, well, look, we take our best bet every year based on sales activity both historical and forecast to produce floats when we think they're needed or to make sure that we have a stock however we do have the flexibility that if we have you know maybe guessed not correct we can change that and we can custom produce a set of floats so along you know the workflow with the customer we're advising them of the schedule if it's changing uh, we might be getting freight quotes for them or giving them, you know, contact information for another installer if they're not able to come here to Minnesota. Or we're also working across with our maintenance team to find the dates to say, hey, bring your airplane up here. We do ferry services if you're unable to bring your aircraft up here. And then when it comes in, we'll start. We assign you a project manager who keeps track of your airplane and sends you updates every week with, hey, here's how things are going. You know, if we find anything unexpected, they'll advise you of that. And then you come back and you take delivery. If you do have your floats installed here at our facility, you also get two hours of flight time. So you can use that to, you know, do your checkout. We have flight instructors on staff if you need additional instruction time as well. But, you know, in the middle of that, we're working with you to figure out, hey, what's your paint scheme? 
what are your paint colors and codes and when can you come up here and just all those little little minutiae of making sure that all the paperwork ducks are in a row the floats are done when they need to be your airplanes here when it needs to be and that it's completed on time yeah amazing um bit of a silly question from what you just said then as well you said you've got instructors there have you ever had well i know that it's pretty hard in the industry sometimes to get a start flying seaplanes and sometimes water time and water landings is the critical part have you ever had anyone who's uh come in there with a suit and tie on pretending to be a businessman or something but they really just want to take a plane out and do some water landings to um fatten up the logbook it's it's happened but we don't offer outside flight instruction so you really kind of bring need to bring your own airplane um and then of course for aircraft that we're selling we qualify each one coming through just to make sure that we're you know for flying either our aircraft or a customer's aircraft that we're not wasting anyone's time or putting time and use on an aircraft but for the most part you know people are really pretty pretty good about things we can pretty well tell when someone's serious and a lot of people that are looking long term will say hey look i'm not going to be a customer for a few years but i have questions and we're always happy to help them out that's that's awesome next thing i guess um i wanted to ask about was what about the staff how many staff there are at whipline uh, including you know sales and and building the floats as well off the top of my head, I think we're at about 180 right now, and the biggest department here is manufacturing. Our next largest department is our maintenance team, and then you start to see some of our smaller departments, which at a company like Whipair are engineering, there's a, you know people in accounting, there's those of us in sales, so we've got a smattering of, of other smaller departments, but uh, manufacturing and maintenance are the biggest components of our team. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to talk a little bit about manufacturing as well. Now, the names of all the floats, um, I think this sometimes can confuse people. Where do you get the name of, say, a Whipline 8750 or Whipline 2100? How, how does that work? In a lot of ways, it's just a number that sounds cool because for <laughs> for us, a model number is just that. There are manufacturers that use a model number to represent the buoyancy or max flotation or gross weight of the aircraft that goes on that float. And in our case, it's loosely related, but you know, definitely not the same. So occasionally I'll hear people tell me, well, I think a 2100 is a little, little small, you know, for a Husky at 2250 gross weight. And I said, well, they float certified and approved to support over a 2,400 pound airplane. So I think you're okay, but there is a little bit of a misnomer there. So again, loosely related, but just a model number, like our 3000 floats are good to the amphibs 3472 off the water, no land limitations, but people think, oh, that's a, that's a little bit of a small float for a 185. When in reality, it's, it's got you know, plenty of buoyancy for it. Well, there you go. I thought they were literally just the buoyancy numbers. So, um, bit of strategy there as well, I guess, in marketing to um, have the names different. So, very interesting. And and how does buoyancy work? Like, uh, it's a bit more of a technical question, but it's a quite an interesting topic as well um, with the float plane. And and what's the extra factor added on to the top of buoyancy for um, an aircraft? Oh, so this one. Here in the States, we have the 80% reserve buoyancy rule. So we publish a couple of different numbers, and one of them is displacement. Like if you shove that float 
all the way underwater, how much water does it displace? But then there's another number that says, hey, here's what the air, what the float can actually support in terms of an airplane and have 80% reserve buoyancy. And that basically means that, you know, in the in the case of a of a uh, 3000 amphib, I can put 3,472 pounds on it and it's still 80% of its buoyancy is above water. You know, otherwise, and the reason for that is, you know, if you look at a displacement number, well, again, that assumes the float is entirely underwater, <laughs> which it doesn't yeah. do. It doesn't fly well when it's underwater. So Not that's exactly. an, yeah, so it's an FAA requirement. So you will see those numbers and we publish both of them just so that you can see what the difference is. But there is an FAA handbook. I think it's 8083 off the top of my head. And, you know, they have a nice little rundown of like, hey, here's how the calculation works. And of course, all the calculations are done based on freshwater because that's your worst case scenario versus being more buoyant in saltwater. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess for those people who don't really realize uh, with the whole buoyancy concept there, it comes back to Archimedes principle, which is where the amount of displacement that the uh, float actually takes up so once it's sitting in the water if you were to look at all of that space that the float is in the water there that weight of water uh, that the float has displaced is basically equal to the aeroplane on top or everything on top of the water there is that correct Amy? Yes it is a common question that comes up and you know we've addressed it in a newsletter and there are simple and easy ways to explain it and then there's sometimes the engineering ways but like I said, we do list both our displacement and flotation numbers on our website, which can sometimes cause a little confusion. So like you said, when you're thinking in terms of like how big of an airplane can I put on these floats, displacement's great for understanding the relative size of the airplane. But when you look on our website, what's most important to you is the max flotation because that says how much weight can I put on those floats and still meet the FAA requirements for 80% reserve buoyancy. No, it is a bit of a complicated topic. Um, still trying to get my head around it as well. But uh, you know, I I've probably said dumb things about it before, and like anything in in aviation, it is a it is a learning process, and we all get a little smarter with age. Yep, absolutely. Now back into the development side of things. Um, the team there, how do they go about? You know, I mean. I, just for example, recently the caravan went from a 8,000 float to an 8750 in the last kind of five, six years, I guess. And that's obviously because the caravan EX has gone onto the floats, um, not just the, the baby van there. Um, so how does the team go out and develop a set of floats for a bigger aircraft like that? In that case, Cessna worked with us we've got a long running relationship with Cessna as well as many other manufacturers and they knew that they were going to put that big old engine in the grand caravan and they knew that hey that makes a lot of sense from an operator perspective to have that aircraft on floats whereas in the past the grand caravan was just bigger and heavier it didn't have any more power so like why would you do that you know uh, compared to the short caravan so we were able to work collaboratively with them and along the way we're able to engineer a gross weight increase as well because you change where the floats come in now you know they are coming up to the fuselage of the aircraft which is generally speaking always stronger than the nose gear it's usually the nose gear that's the weak link on any airplane and can limit what you what you do for gross weight. So there are programs that are you know quite collaborative with OEMs, and there are also ones that we take on 
more independently, where if we see like uh, back in the day when we first certified the Super Cub on floats, well, Piper wasn't building any more of them. They, you know, they couldn't possibly care less what we did if we put a Super Cub on floats or not, but it was an engineering effort on our side where we saw something, a need for something in the market that wasn't being fulfilled. So there can be a, a variety of, of paths forward as with most things, but we do try and be pretty collaborative internally. Um, suggestions can come from sales, they can come from our mechanics, they can come from our leadership and ownership as well, just based on experiences and of course customer suggestions as well. Yeah, right. And then what about like the development of like, do you have some sort of like floating tank in the in Whip Air there where you can like build a float, you know, stack it up on the water there, like some sort of like wind tunnel or such when you're de- designing a new float or does the kind of tried and true, you know, 60 years of building floats, you kind of know that it'll work straight away? After 60 years of building floats, we've usually got a really good starting point. Yeah. So we can, we can identify what hull shapes have worked well. We can analyze some of the differences between airplanes. Maybe what works well for one airplane didn't work so well for another. Uh, we can also take a look at manufacturability. You know, it's sometimes you can make a really wonderful hull shape, but it's an absolute bear to manufacture. Well, or perhaps it's not easy to maintain. So you're balancing a lot of those things. And what we'll start with is looking at our existing product line take what inspiration we can from that. If there's an opportunity to use some of those same parts, all the better, because that means that we're building more so we can take advantage, at least to some extent, of economies of scale, keep the parts production costs and cost to the customer down and just keep it simple and easy. So we'll start with that. Then we have the opportunity to build up a prototype. A lot of times we will start by uh, dropping it and crunching it. Often Often we'll start with the gear or we'll start with the float itself and then you put the gear in the float depending upon if we're going for uh, an amphibious float or a straight float. But we do try and kind of keep that in mind from the get-go. In our main hangar, we call it Hangar 1 because we're very creative, there's an (laughs) offshoot of it called One West and One West is the the wild west of engineering, uh, so to speak. And they have weird torture devices in there. They twist things, they break things, they put strain gauges on it, pull, bend, all of that. And so once the float makes it through that torture testing, uh, which usually takes a, you know, a couple rounds, we're, we're pretty good at the analysis up front. But, you know, hey, maybe we make a couple of tweaks along the way. And sometimes what you'll find is a tweak somewhere can drive something else. Say that you're working on your gear and you have to beef the landing gear up first. Okay, well now, instead of the gear breaking, maybe you're crunching a bulkhead. So you can have a little bit of a snowball effect. So it can be a little little iterative, as they say, where you work through all of those things. And once we make it through that, the floats will receive their technical standard order. That means the floats have been blessed by the FAA, but that doesn't let us put them on an airplane yet. Here in the States, we need a supplemental type certificate, which you know certain countries and organizations will accept through a bilateral agreement. Some of them will require additional validation efforts. Uh, so there can be a, a wide variety of experiences there, but building a float is not enough. And keep in mind that building a float, by the way, is just the float, it's the hull. Now we need to design rigging to put it on the airplane and we have to figure out how the airplane tolerates it as well. So you move through 
quite a number of things. Yeah, that's such an incredible process. I'm glad you guys are doing it, not me. Absolutely, six six years of uh, experience, and you're getting it right for sure. Um, the next one I want to talk about is the the scooping floats that you've got because you are, or you guys are the ones that fit out the 802 air tractors into fire bosses with the Whipline 10,000s. Can you tell us a little bit about those and the development? Yes. First of all, I mean, never something that you would think to see as an ag airplane fighting fires with floats on it, but nevertheless, <laughs> here we are. Uh, so the fire boss is a really interesting platform and has gained international adoption faster than here in the United States, but we're picking up picking up a lot of speed here as well. Uh, so that float takes inspiration from several. You know, we talked a little bit how, hey, you know, after 60 years, we're kind of good at this stuff and we can take inspiration from our other floats. And that's the Fireboss uses a 10,000 series float and it takes a lot of components from our, our 13,000, but it's got a totally different shape on the tail. It's got a scoop system in forward of the landing gear, forward of the main gear, and that routes the water up along the pylon and up into the hopper of the aircraft. So that airplane can take up oh, about 800 to 820 gallons in approximately 15 seconds of scooping. It's incredible. And how did the testing go for that kind of float? I mean, you know, you've got to go out there and test something that drops down and drags down almost like a landing gear. Um, that would have been an incredible process, uh, I imagine. Yes, and I, I can't say that I was around for that, but our president and CEO, Chuck Whiplinger, was. And what was really interesting is now we've got two-seat fire bosses, but at the time, well, there was only a single seat. So you really were a test pilot in the complete and total, you know, spirit of the term. And there are some different techniques you can use. A fire boss can be a, a challenging airplane to fly just by nature of ag airplanes in general tend to be a little bit unstable to make them maneuverable because that's their whole job is maneuvering. So it's a it's a weird segment. It's a really interesting job. Um, the floats themselves are unlike anything else we've ever built. Now we did build 13,000 floats for a Canadian fire bomber back in the day. Those ones were different because they stored water in the floats. We really like the fact that these, the 10,000 scoops up into a, a dedicated hopper in the air tractor. That's worked really well. Yeah. Um, two questions on that. First one is, what aircraft did that 13,000 with um, scooping ability go onto? And the second one, does the water in the floats affect its buoyancy? So first question, those scooping floats, the first ones were on a Twin Otter uh, up in Canada. Uh, buoyancy, I, it has to affect it. I don't know. There was only a couple of sets built, but I can't imagine that hauling a few hundred gallons of water didn't because it's effectively a flooded compartment at that point. Yeah, exactly. Just like, yeah, just like to certify floats here, we need to flood two compartments and it still needs to float. Like, I mean... You're effectively flooding a compartment, so it was a different. It was definitely a different, different style airplane. Yeah, I, it's interesting you said you know about the pilots there flying the fire bosses single seat. A mate of mine flies over in Canada there. I want to get him on the show soon. Actually, um, he said basically you do a lot of theory, do some circuits or whatever on the on the land, get used to the airplane, and then you go out to the lake and literally in the single seat machine, and there's a guy in a tinny that has a radio and kind of tells you what the attitude is and you know from from a distance and you kind of go out there and figure it out yourself so 
pretty incredible what those guys do with those with those aircraft. Yep, that is there's still an accurate uh, statement for at least early stage training. Like I said, we are see, seeing more operators purchase dedicated two-seaters for it, but I have heard tales of the first international operators or some of the first international users of the Fireboss came over here and this was before the two-seater existed. And so not only same thing, somebody's out out in a little boat, you know, with a handheld radio, you know, a oh, little nose up, little nose down, a little slower, a little faster. Uh, but the best part is like he had a language barrier in there too. But they, you know, highly skilled pilots with great stick and rudder skills, they figured it out. But uh, it was, you know, it's it's a different type of flying. There is really no comparison to it. So it is very much, it's on the job training. Yeah, Amy, you mentioned also that uh, Whipline do a few other things behind the scenes, not just in the float world, um, painting, interiors. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, we've got a world-class paint shop. We can fit oh, up to about a 300 or 350 series King Air. Now we've done paint in there. We don't see too many jets, but we've done everything from home builds up to large turboprops. We've worked with airbrush artists to do truly custom schemes. Uh, they do beautiful work, several award-winning airplanes coming out of here. Our interior shop can do anything from you know, vinyl utilitarian seats for our commercial operators up to, you know, full executive interiors. We have STC'd our own executive interior, uh, which was, you know, a, a different. Previously, many of the executive interiors were field approvals, which could be difficult to export out of the United States. So having a supplemental type certificate for it makes it uh, more useful around the world. And then our avionics shop, uh, we're one of the top 10% of Garmin dealers they have a what they call the Garmin Gold Award our shop has won that uh, a number of times so we've got not only all that Garmin experience we work with all these different avionics manufacturers we are one of the few avionics shops in our area that still has a wide variety of vintage bench equipment as well so whether you're flying a 172 with original instruments or you just came here in a brand new G1000 NXI caravan like we got you covered. Yeah, that's incredible. How did that all develop, like having such a variety? Is that because, you know, you need to paint the floats, I guess, and maybe install some instruments in the in the cockpit there for the floats? And then did that just develop through that process? Yeah, it was very organic. You know, there was a lot of manufacturers, float manufacturers at the time that didn't necessarily perform installations. So if you wanted a, you know, a factory experience, you could come to Whip Air, you could have your floats installed by the export experts. And by the way, none of us like when our airplanes have to go to multiple shops or be down for multiple times. So if you had someone with the skill set because you already needed to do a gear advisory system, and maybe you're already taking the interior out of the airplane to put the floats on and you're already painting the floats, well, why not leverage those skilled technicians to offer additional upgrades to the airplane so it all grew out very organically yeah that's incredible amy um before we get to the end of the segment here um i want to kind of know about what um your daily routine is i guess so what's what's a day like for you at work are you doing a bit of flying still or is it just mainly just sales stuff it can depend on the day. Most of my flying is if we're traveling to and from trade shows or if I have the opportunity to do any training with our director of flight operations. He surprisingly stays very busy because, as you can imagine, specialized seaplane training 
can be a little bit difficult to, to find. So when we have customers that need help meeting insurance requirements, we're able to do that. So when I come in in the morning, the first thing I do is I plug in my computer, I fire it up. By then I know if I've got any you know, urgent customer requests or emails or quotes to issue. Uh, but soon after getting here, I do my walk through the hangar and I, I like to call it checking on the children. So if I have airplanes in there, I, I go check on all of my children and see how they're doing and what I need to know. And, you know, we have our maintenance project managers handle all of the details, but I, I have an emotional attachment to every airplane that comes through here. And I like to tell people, so well, you're part of part of our customer family, whether you like it or not. So you may as well enjoy it because I'm, I'm always going to care about your airplane. And I'm always going to care about how much fun you have with it. And so I like to go out there and see them. And it's not a bad excuse to go look at airplanes, too. Is the hangar they set up like a showroom, like with you know boards that say how much they're for? Have they got stickers on the window to say finance me or you know the price or you know how's how's that all set up? Well, the majority of airplanes coming through our hangar are customer owned, so they're already here for something. We don't see as many walk-ins. We do get a few, which is always fun because someone comes in, oh, somebody's here to talk about airplanes. Uh, but again, the majority of airplanes coming into our hangar are here is actually a maintenance facility. So we don't have a dedicated showroom. We do have uh, more hangars than I probably even know exist to go hide airplanes in. So there's always a wide variety. And you just go on the treasure hunt and we'll we'll show you different airplanes or different floats. We'll walk you through manufacturing so you can see them in process and learn along the way. And I do want to mention financing because you had mentioned that earlier. Now, Whip Air doesn't offer float financing, but there are companies out there that do. Uh, one of them is Airfleet Capital. Uh, there are a couple others that do offer float financing as well. Yeah, nice. Well, we might as well jump into the, uh, the Splash and Dash questionnaire to uh, wrap up the interview here, Amy. Um, so just like the land plane touch and go, the seaplane splash and dash, we'll just touch on a few uh, seaplane related questions, of course. Uh, so far in your um, experience as a seaplane pilot, what has been your favorite seaplane that you've flown? Oh, see, I'm a cub person through and through. So I, I got to say, I did my seaplane rating in a, a classic super cub and I had just a blast, but I, I will I had fun with Huskies and 182s as well, but I'm always partial to a Cub. There you go. What about um, the coolest plane that you've sold? Oh, I mean, they're all pretty cool. I've had really, really amazing paint job Huskies go through here. I've had airplanes with incredible uh, avionics in them. I had, oh, I, well, okay, here's an interesting one. I don't know that I could pick a favorite, but one of the more interesting ones is what I like to call the Time Capsule 206. And it was a 206 that was a two-owner airplane and had been owned for all but two years by the, the seller. And it had original paint, original interior, you know, factory flow. It had this beautiful classic scheme, and it had been sitting in a hangar for out of annual for like six or seven years, and it was coated in a fine patina of dust. And it was sold and actually lives here on the airport that uh, Whip Air is based at. And I've had the chance to see the airplane come through and kind of you know, come out of hibernation. They got a ferry permit for it. Then it got annual. And now it's got new avionics in it. They're upgrading the interior. They've polished it. It's stunning looking. And it's yeah, wow. just fun to fun to watch watch that one. Would that be probably the like the most interesting plane that you've actually seen come through the airport? I mean, like you said, you just kind of you're at the moment working on the smaller side of airplanes. Um, 
you know, is there something else that stands out as being one of the most interesting seaplanes that have come through Whip Air? Well, if if I may mention a an interesting seaplane that has not yet come to fruition, there is a company near us here in Minnesota called Rare Aircraft, and they build absolutely world class restoration Stearmans, Wacos, Stinsons. And they have a customer that wants to put a Stinson Gullwing on floats. And I think that will be just one of the most incredible looking airplanes out there. A Stinson? It's often called the Stinson Reliant. So it's got that beautiful Gullwing. And now they've been on floats before. Kind of, I forget exactly what model they were on. But just beautiful classic airplane. And along that line is another one-of-a-kind airplane that I would also qualify as one of the more interesting ones is the Cessna 165 Airmaster, which had previously never been approved on amphibious floats before, but had been on straight floats. So a customer was able to adapt a set of Whipline 2350 amphibious floats for this Airmaster, which looks like a baby 195. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful airplane. Yeah, nice. I've just Googled both of them. Yeah, that, that's, oh yeah, there's one on floats as well. This Cessna 165, that looks very cool. I was going to say the Stinson Gullwing almost looks a bit like a 195 as well with the radial at the front there, high wing. Yep, but really a big airplane. I guess okay. I don't know, the off the top of my head, I don't know the weight on a 195, but that, that Stinson Reliant is just a, they have that beautiful radial lope when they're, when they're running and just, they're just a classy, beautiful airplane. It's got all those art deco, you know, curves and shapes to it. They're just really cool. Yeah, that's going to look epic on uh, floats. Make sure you share a picture of that once that comes to fruition for sure. Um, you, you work up in um, the top there of the states, as I mentioned before. So you've got lakes, rivers, maybe a bit of open ocean. You probably don't have open ocean up there, I imagine, in the middle of the continent. Um, and Or a coral cay. I don't know if you've been there either, but what, what's been your favorite place to land a seaplane so far? You know, uh, I would have to say Greenville, Maine. We flew our Boss 182 demo airplane out there in Maine. The Northwoods of Maine has just phenomenal scenery. You can sit and weave your way through the valleys instead of going over the ridges. And you've got these just, it's super scenic and wonderful. And of course, it's a little bit of a seaplane homecoming as well uh, for their annual seaplane flying. Yeah, right. That sounds pretty good. Um what about, um, you know, like you said, you've, you see a lot of seaplanes there. What would be your dream seaplane to fly down the track? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I think it's probably everybody's dream, but a radial engine beaver. I don't care about yeah. the practicality. It's just the coolest, <laughs> most beautiful airplane. Is is kind of stepping up into the um, the bigger floats, is that something on the cards later on down the track? I can't say what the future will hold, but I will say that as – as wonderful as our big products are, I really love the space here in the small aircraft because I deal with people whose dream it is to own an airplane. So I like to say that I get to make your seaplane dreams come true. And that's it's just really cool to see someone that has dreamed of having a float plane for years be able to put that into reality. So we're definitely, you know, high on the passion factor in the small side. And, and that's really what I love most. Yeah, that's a great way to... Because I imagine the the bigger aeroplanes, they're more for operators, aren't they, maybe? Correct, correct. So you tend to deal with 
um, more layers in the larger aircraft. You might be dealing with the flight department and and it's still a lot of fun. Um, my colleague ha really enjoys it, but tell you what, I just, I get a chance to talk, talk airplanes and learn about, you know, places to go, things to do that I will actually go to and do myself. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, Amy, I'd like to finish with um, any advice you have for aspiring seaplane pilots. What about anyone, you know, any advice for anyone who wants to come and work at Whip Air? You know, what would you say to them? Always keep an open mind and be willing to learn. We can be an interesting industry in that we're such a niche of a niche in aviation. So if you're not willing to learn, you're not going to succeed, but stay humble and learn from all of those that have earned their gray hair here. Yeah, that's great <laughs> advice. I think that goes with uh, with really seaplanes in general, but I can tell that you've learned because it's been an incredible um, conversation talking all about floats um, and picking your brain. There's certainly lots to uh, pick there. So uh, Amy Gesh, um, really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk all things float planes and flying boats with me on the step. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, Daniel. It was a pleasure to be here. And that's the show for today, folks. What a great conversation with Amy, and thanks to her for taking the time to talk seaplanes with us all. In saying that, though, it sounds like talking seaplanes is part of her job. Lucky bugger. You can all check out what Amy does on Instagram at Amy Gesch, that's G-E-S-C-H. Folks, now is the time to share this podcast and leave a review to help the show grow. It's up to you all to make sure the wonderful world of seaplanes grows and grows. Next episode, I stick with the float building world to talk to Levi Guimond from PK Floats, a much smaller float company, but one with just as much passion and love for building seaplane floats. There's six to 8,000 rivets in a pair of floats, depending on the model. Uh, the bigger floats obviously have more rivets. And each one's done by hand. You know, each rivet is, is done by hand. Some are done with the assistance of a big automatic rivet machine, but every single one is lined up by hand and either squeezed or, or bucked individually. Until next time, everyone, thanks for coming on The Step. <laughs>